Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, and welcome to the Master and Pursuit podcast, and our final part of our five-part mini-series into women in sport. Of course, generally speaking, this podcast is about workouts, where I record myself doing a session that you can then follow as if I'm there with you. It's also about recovery rambles, where I run easy around the beautiful Epping Forest, and it is beautiful today, big blue sky, and I'll talk about something that's on my mind. And it's the podcast that brings you conversations with the elites as part of our scheme to invest in underfunded British elite marathon runners. And today, on Wednesday the 16th of August, just moments after England secured victory in the Women's World Cup semi-final against Australia, the Lionesses breaking new ground We've got a conversation with Catherine Flitcher, who's not at all related to the football, although we do talk a little bit about the football, but not specifically. And Catherine, whom some of you might know, is a remarkable athlete. We'll come on to talk about that, actually, in the conversation. And from an athletics point of view, she talks a little bit about the Met League, just a point of reference, really, for those that don't know the Met League. It is the highly competitive cross-country league that covers North London and the surrounding areas. And she talks about how she enters the abyss. (laughs) She also talks about how she enters the sublime with the marathon, which she performs spectacularly. And she is a remarkable athlete, but she's also a remarkable person. She is a professor possessing a PhD in philosophy. And you can hear that coming out as you listen to this conversation, not least in her descriptions of the abyss and the sublime, which I kind of glossed over at the time because they're philosophical references that go way beyond my comprehension. I did a little bit of Googling afterwards. Still don't understand it but I thought it was interesting anyway. So we're going to get straight into it. No more faffing about. It's such a rich conversation. I'm not going to hold it back any further with my inanity. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. So, Catherine, you are obviously a marathon runner, or a runner, full stop, but a marathon runner specifically of of a high calibre. So in London, just gone in 2023, you ran 3.14.33 off the back of Berlin last year in 3.20, which was off the back of Manchester last year in just under 3.14. And you've done four marathons in total, am I right? That's right, yeah. yeah. And those numbers are good for most people, but they're especially good in your age category, being a female of over 60 years old which we all think is super impressive, but I know that you don't necessarily think that is the case. But 
I think what I'm most interested in, we can talk about those performances, but what I'm most interested in is where that's come from. So can you start by taking us through how long you've been in running and what your involvement in running has been over time? So I think, as you say, I'm over 60, 62 to be specific, and I have run for a long time. Well, given that I'm 62, I've run for a long time. I I first started um, when I was 22, which is, I suppose, actually relatively old um, in terms of running careers. Um, But it was actually when I was at university and one of my lecturers probably thought I had a, I had a, an eating disorder and um, had mental problems. Um, that's probably not entirely incorrect. And he kind of, in some at some level, just at, during some talk, suggested I take up running. And the reason why I think he thought that I had a, a, an eating problem is he basically emphasized how if you run, then you can eat what you like and you don't have to worry about your weight. And um, I was sort of like, I, it, it, it surprised me that he thought of me in those uh, in those terms but um i did i was curious about running and so i i started um on his suggestion and i found um i found i liked it and i found i liked it not because of um the reasons that he suggested um but i think he was right in thinking that i was very troubled about something um for me, I think my first experience of running was that it was very hard and very liberating at the same time. Um, it was hard because it's very difficult when you first start to run to actually run because you get out of breath and it's just phenomenally difficult to make yourself um, keep going. But I think it was liberating for me because I felt in control of my body in a way in which I hadn't really expected. Um, and I felt that my body was um, quite powerful in a way that I kind of knew from my childhood because my childhood was very active, um, doing lots of different sports, not running, um, but I've always been very active and I've always had the reputation of being quite strong as a woman. Um, but uh, during my sort of teenage years, that dropped away for various reasons. And so when I first started running, um, I kind of regained I think I, I, I regained a sense of myself. And that sounds perhaps a bit dramatic, but um yeah, there was a there was a sense that I had that my body was for me to take care of in mm. a way. And I think that was for me the most liberating aspect about about running. And um the other side of it was so I um not only did an undergraduate degree, but I did uh, further degrees. And during my PhD, running was really what kept me sane. Uh, so if you do doctoral work, it is extremely stressful. It's very lonely. And um, uh, there's very little sort of mental outlet. And one of the things that made it possible for me to get up in the morning was precisely to get up every every morning, six o'clock, and do a sort of six to 10K run. And that was, in a way, my time. Uh, the time where I didn't have to worry and I remember uh, the day went downhill from then Um, but so for me running I associate very much with power and confidence and yeah strength and that power is power that you have over your body yes I have been thinking a little bit about this I don't know whether men would easily uh, relate to that um, 
to that sort of feeling because my impression is that perhaps men often can take that for granted or they assume that naturally, of course, they uh, they are the boss over their own body. And I think that uh, in my experience for women, that is typically not really the case. Uh, I think historically, it's obviously not the case that women have a say over what happens with their bodies, but also at a personal level, it's often not the case or one experiences at a personal level that um, somebody else takes control over over your body. And I think that um, in my in my case, in the past, there was that sort of thing happened. That is why for me, running made it possible for me to to feel myself, to feel my to feel my body and to feel that my body is mine. So, so, so I. My impression is that for various reasons, the the, the female body is much more an object of decision making by society, um, uh, by um, uh, advertising industries, and you know. Uh, and I think that uh, that a lot of women probably act, uh, lack bodily confidence because. They feel observed and they feel judged in all about their bodies um, at, at virtually every level. And I think one tends to internalize that. Uh, and I think for me, at any rate, running was a way in which I could feel um, I, I could shed all of that. I could shed all of those uh, sort of associations about somebody else being in control of my body. And I think that for me was really important, a really sort of important thing that I associate with running. Mm. That's amazing. So you've got this sense that helped you overcome the eating disorder disorder helped you stay mentally healthy but part of that was about how it made you feel in control of your own body and not allowing yourself and your body to be judged by other people and for you to take that ownership back yes yes and i i wouldn't say it was a conscious sure no conscious thing i think it was what I discovered that what I think what I discovered when I started to run was that um, I discovered that I felt um, that something was given back to me through this. And I wouldn't say that it's necessarily all positive because it becomes a kind of compulsion to some extent um, because you want to have that experience again and again but wanting to have that experience is of course in some sense also an expression of um yeah not being able to take it for granted yeah so so uh, so i think that i don't know i as i said i have the impression that men don't have that particular problem with bodily confidence Mm. and that is perhaps a function of the of the fact that yeah that the that the female body is politicized much more explicitly than the than the than the male body yeah and I, th- I think where that where that holds true in my mind is that men don't have that pressure to look a certain way when they're doing anything really mm. and women have that I mean there's more to it than just the yeah. visible element to it but there is something that men don't carry there and also men are society will tell you that men are active and they should be sporty they should be fit they should be dynamic they should be active they should have jobs that are physically powerful as well as playing sport which is obviously physically powerful so it's sort of in the men's societal psyche 
whereas for women it wasn't and at that age so 22 were you in the UK then or was that in Germany yeah yeah, I was in the UK I was studying at the University of Essex oh right okay in Colchester (laughs) yeah that's right yeah (laughs) brilliant and so that age 22 so you're 62 now so that's 40 years ago so where's that 1983 yeah early 80s yes women hadn't even been allowed to run the marathon at the Olympics by 1983. 1984 was the first time they were allowed to do that. And actually most marathons, the London Marathon only just started. The Boston Marathon had allowed women in from the early 70s, and that's one of the longest running marathons in the world. So it's women's ability to do endurance events has always been held back, partly because of the societal expectations of what a women's body can can and can't do. Yeah. Yeah. And should and shouldn't be allowed to do. Obviously, largely decided by men. Yes, I think that's uh, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I was amazed when I first heard. I mean, I didn't I didn't know this until very recently that women had not been allowed to um, run the marathon until the eighties. I couldn't believe it because, from my perspective, um, even though I think as I was very aware that at some point in my life I had the experience of. Um, someone else taking control over my body. So I was very aware of a sense of alienation from myself, I suppose. At another level, I never, I mean, I never doubted that I can do things. I never doubted my physical capacity. And it it is actually not really until I joined the running club that I realized just how much Mm. inequality there is still in, in sports. So from my own sort of, own sense of what I can or can't do. There was never a doubt in my mind that I can do basically what what, what men can do. Maybe not as fast, or maybe not as quickly. But um, but uh, I never assumed that I was less capable. But I think the message from society is very strong in this regard, generally speaking. Uh, so I think one reason why, in my case, this is perhaps not so ingrained is because um, I remember my father was very active in sports and we were we were five children and he did have you know some some childcare duties um and the way in which he would discharge them is he basically just throw us in the car together with his equipment and we'd go skiing or swimming or hiking a mountain so they so we were and he never distinguished between sons and daughters we were all just doing the same thing and there was no implicit feminism it was just his way of getting to do what he wanted to do despite despite mm. having children so from I but I think the benefit for me from this was that I it, it would never occur to me that as a woman or as a girl uh, I was naturally um, less capable than um, than boys or men uh, but the the social message I think is uh, is very powerful becomes very powerful at a, at a certain stage and I think I did have the benefit of the home environment just not thematizing that yeah that i think that makes a massive difference the role of the parent i think is coming through really strongly in all of the work that i'm doing in this space as either over supporting under supporting or neutrally supporting the development in activity and sport of women and that can be about not putting too much pressure on or providing opportunity taking them places like your father did with you even though it's obviously to suit some of his own needs of wanting to ski mm-hmm. and be active himself but so what you know he got you active and got yeah. you to where you are today and that that role and particularly of male parents actually I think is is coming through really powerfully because female parents it seems are 
loaded up with the same societal thoughts yes, of course. from their own upbringing and that yeah. is the, the 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 sense that women are are frail and should be protected yeah. and so they try and protect their daughters whereas men are much more likely to go no we're going to crack on through this and actually today that's there's evidence that dads of daughters are the real cornerstones of women getting involved in sport now because dads of daughters are obviously dads who've grown up in a world where men can play sport and do whatever they want and the first time they realize that society is loaded against women in sport is when they have females children of their own and they go why haven't they got the same access to sport as i did when i was a child right or as those boys do let's change this so let's organize a women's rugby team or a women's football team and let's go and support their running or whatever it might be. Yeah. And so that that's, but that's, in a way, I think that's quite interesting because that then suggests that some of the dads, at least, actually are, are going against the social norms hmm. when, they, when they have their own children and they want their own children to be able to take part in certain things. Then it's actually then by, by what you say, it's the dads who are challenging the female norms in in society which is really quite unexpected i think yeah i think there's there's from what i see there's a lot of evidence that suggests that male allies which is a term that's banded around a lot mm. are actually really important in oh, yeah. the success of female sport right. yeah and then obviously female role models so people who right. we we can see being out there and being active in sport whether whether it's a pe teacher a uh, coach another athlete a peer Whoever it is, women are much more likely to believe they can do something if they see other women being able to do it themselves, which is, of course, what you're doing. Right. So you're showing people that women are capable of extraordinary things, even at the ripe old age of 62. (laughs) (laughs) And that's genuinely the case. And I don't want to wish to make you blush. And obviously, this, this (laughs) this is a podcast. You can't see people blushing anyway. But that is what you're doing. You are showing people what can be done through the female body and particularly because you're older, but not just because you're older. Well, I uh, well in, in a way, I I that's great. I think that's great. That's not why I'm doing it. No. And in a way, I also think it's kind of important to do it because you want to do it, and not because you've sort of got that sort of mission. If you see what I mean. Hundred um, percent. So so because I think that why do I run? It's not it's not it's not to encourage other women to run because I I do also think that. It's not for everyone. And I also think that um, it's not all nice. So sometimes I sort of think that when, um, you know, the, the, the this, girl ga- this Girl Can campaign, which I think was actually very good because it, it tried to encourage uh, women to, to have the confidence to do it. And especially it tried to encourage women of whatever bodily shape to have to con- the confidence to do this. But I think that... So for me, running is also, in a way, a passion. It's not something that I do ultimately for any other reason than that I have to do it at some level. And I also think that there are moments when, for me, running running is a pathology. So where I run and I know that um, I'm going to dark places within me that it is at some level not good for me to go to, but that I have a need to go to, and running gets me there. So for me, running is um, running is not something that I I would recommend that people do um, to lose a bit of weight 
or that people do to feel a bit better about themselves. I don't know. Maybe you can do. I'm sure you can do it for that for those reasons as well. But I think the reasons why I run are much more varied, and not all of them are good reasons. No, I think that's right. And I, I say to people when, when I coach is that there's many reasons to run at a very simplistic level. That for me, the reasons to run are for competition, it's for sport, it's for you know taking other people on com- and competing. It can be about mental health, the mental health benefits, it can be about the physical health benefits, it can be about adventurism, going out and going and seeing stuff that you can't do unless you can run and run reasonably capably. And it, it, there's probably loads of other things, things besides those, but those are things that I think about. And it can be, you don't have to choose one of those four things or five things, no. whatever it is, they, it can vary from one week to another, which is something we talk about in the training blocks, right? So sometimes we're going full on at it, at trying to work on marathon pace specifics and others we're trying to do stuff that's a bit more relaxed and a bit more chilled depending on what's going on so it, it, it can all it can all vary but what i'm sensing from you is there's almost a there's almost a, an unbreakable bond between you and running that sometimes becomes uncomfortable for you yeah so for instance um remember how i i um i worry about the med league mm-hmm. and the med league is something that I find um, uh, there's something very visceral about the Met League, uh, something very raw and very, very aggressive. And I initially thought that I'd, I'd get better at handling my emotions about this. And I found and said that from Met League to Met League, it gets worse for me. My anxiety levels get worse. And I remember that the last one that we had was Trent Park, I think. Yeah. Possibly. Yeah. You wouldn't believe what state I was in before the before the race. And afterward, I, I actually talked to my husband, and I said, you know, I don't know why I do this because it it, it I find it incredibly self destructive at some level, and I, I think it's not good for me. And he told me this story about Bradley Wiggins. So my husband is a cyclist. Mm-hmm passionate cyclist and he said that Bradley Wiggins when he was young used to cycle as far and fast away from his home as possible in order to escape his abusive father and he said that a lot of people think that Bradley Wiggins overcome adversity by then becoming a professional cyclist and sort of turning something that was bad into something that was good and my husband said that actually who knows whether Bradley Wiggins isn't still driving his demons Mm. i.e he's still running as far and fast away as possible and for me, this was very helpful in relation to the Met League, because I think in, in relation to the Met League, it's, for me, there is something about, I, it feels like returning to an abyss that I cannot help but return to, and I look down, at, and it's an abyss. You know, it's, it's an unresolved issue in me, and I kind of know what it's about, and I know that it can never resolve it, and I, 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 I can't leave it alone. And seeing the Met League in that light um, gives it a, a different spin for me. Um, so I think it's it, this is one of the dark reasons, but I actually think I'm glad that running takes me to the abyss occasionally. And I'm glad that, yeah, I'm glad I have that outlet. I'm glad that I can return to this abyss, to this unresolved thing, and do it through running. So that's what I mean by saying it's not always nice. Mm. Sometimes it's really awful. Um but it's an expression of it's an expression of who you are 
And that's mm. what I love about running. Well, the, the one thing that is certain about running is it is all about who you are. I and mean, if you go back to the 22 year old you with the eating disorder issues mm. and the mental health challenges, yeah. yeah. It, that was a lot about running, helping you realize again who you are and having some independence from everything yeah. else around you. And I'll talk a lot about running being a great provider of freedom because you can get out and you can do, if you're fit enough, you can get out and do pretty much what you want. You can go to places that other people can't get to. Yeah. It's a release and it's actually a luxury if you're fit enough, particularly as we age, if you're fit enough to get out and do stuff, it is amazing what you can experience as a result, both in terms of you know, the environment that's around you but also mm. what goes on in your brain and it doesn't really come from anywhere else there isn't another there's not nothing like it I don't think that you can compare it to whether it's cycling or other activities it's a very very human and very personal and very real thing and why do you think that might be with running in particular because I wonder whether a cyclist would hotly debate this <laughs> well they may they may well do um, because in cycling, I don't think you do have that freedom because you're so dependent upon the bike. You're dependent That's what I on think. Roads. I mean, I think one of the beauties of running is the fact that you need nothing but yourself, really. Yeah, absolutely. You need to trainers. Yeah, which are increasingly expensive and all that yeah. kind of stuff. But, yeah. but park that, and running used to be a very affordable sport, but perhaps it's not so much these days, particularly if you want to compete. But you can go anywhere on your two feet. You know, you can literally yeah. go to places where other people can't, and you yeah. can see things that other people won't irrespective of whether people have been to that place before or you're in that place at that moment in time and you might well be alone and seeing stuff for the, that no one else is is seeing yeah. which i think is a great provider of freedom for us yeah no i agree yeah. and it also i think it takes us away from well the stresses of life right because we're not thinking about all those we, we, well we might be thinking about those things as we're doing as we're running but we aren't having to do anything about it mm-hmm. we can, we're only running mm-hmm and it's all very much in our control. And the control thing, I think, is is really important and powerful, particularly the story you tell about the 22-year-old self. It was about you getting back in control of your body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, um, so I was, when you were talking, I was also thinking, you know, I, I agree with you that um, that running is this sense of freedom. And it's actually a real shame that, um, that this is, uh, that this is, a sort of expression of who one is and an ex- and a form of expressing and satisfying certain needs that women have for such a long time been denied Absolutely. Um, such that very often now i think they um they will think of that as the last thing they want to do yeah um it's sort of it, it, the, the, i think that for many women the thought of physical exertion is actually quite frightening in a certain way because uh, they've always actually been told that this is not something that really women do and this is not something mm. that women are really good at and why would you want to wear yourself out when you could have a cup of tea instead uh, mm. so i think that for a lot of women especially possibly my age they associate i think running with um, the, the last thing they would think is that this is something that they might enjoy. And I think that's a great shame uh, mm. because it is something that um, that is perhaps not at one level, um, you know, in, in enjoyment as, 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 as enjoying an, eating an ice cream, but it's like the feeling of accomplishment that you can get through it. Yeah. Um, and the feeling of just, yeah, having done something or seen something. So when, when you were 22 and you, you were in that position and you you were advised or suggested that you run what how did other people react to that 
particularly women? Well, here's the thing that I wonder whether I'm particularly useful to your purposes, because as you might have also noticed, I'm a bit of a loner. And so I'm also German um, in an English context. So I am not somebody who um, has a lot of English female friends because I don't really know the social code that operates. And that's, I mean, that's, that's just normal. I mean, as a foreigner, you don't break the social code. So I didn't really have too many. This is quite interesting. I didn't really have too many um, sort of female friends. Um, I, I was more either on my own or I get on quite well with men, mm-hmm. oddly enough. Um, oddly enough in the sense that, you know, I think they give one a lot of grief. But nonetheless, I think I think they also, you know, I, I, I like um, they, they're kind of simple <laughs> at some level. <laughs> we're, we're, def- we're definitely simple. Yeah. <laughs> But I, so I guess along the, the 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 short answer is I never it never occurred to me to worry about what mm. anyone thought or what women thought and I don't know what the women thought I don't even know whether they um, uh, whether they realized that this is what I was doing the one point where I did realize that um, that I was being sort of um, noted for my running. And in a disapproving uh, manner amongst women is when I used to drop my children at primary school and then used to go on uh, to go for a run. So I used to turn up in my in my, uh, you know, shorts and 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 I think that a lot of the women um, disapproved because I wasn't doing what I should be doing, which Mm. is sort of more. Probably baking cupcakes for the school fair. Yeah. So I noticed there I noticed that I think people just didn't really think this was something that I should be occupying myself with, especially not if you have small children and you should really be doing something that is more child focused. But that's of course a lot later. So that was in the early two thousands, I guess. So that's the so the disapproval of uh, a certain I guess a, a certain class of of women I noticed then but when I was in my more intense period of running pre-children running was for me a way of getting away from everyone and as I said I've never joined a club I've never watched sports so I I don't really know about the so in all that period pre-children and I guess during having children of a young age you weren't competing at all you were just running for fun yeah. yeah, fun of the time. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And all through that time, it helped you cope with the mental health challenges, kept you sane, as you said earlier. Yeah. And that was yeah. his primary purpose, would you say, all through that period? Probably. Mm. Yeah, I mean, if I, I like I say, I wouldn't. Yes, no, I think especially during the period when I was um, sort of in my early my late 20s, early 30s, um, that was the only thing I felt that made it possible for me to carry on. Mm. So running was hugely important to, to, to my being able to, yeah, um, yeah, carry on. The function, you mean? Well, I'm not sort of born on the sunny side of life. So I 
Um, I often find life very hard. I don't think I ever seriously sort of go completely over to the dark side, but running was very important for me to be able to get out of bed in the morning and to be able to think that I have achieved the most important thing that I had to achieve today. And so the, I can cope with the rest. Mm. So it had, it had a really important function for my, my, my mental health, I think, mm. at, at that time. So I want to go back as well, but let, I, I'd like, now let's go forwards to more like the present day. Mm-hmm. You said before you only joined a club very recently. So yeah. Victoria Park Harriers, I guess, four years ago, five years ago. I was trying to think. I think it was, I think it was. Just before the pandemic. I was either 58 or 59. Yeah. So not long ago. No. And prior to that, you hadn't done any competition. No. And it isn't, it's on that basis, it's not surprising that the Met League, which is obviously a highly competitive cross country event, <laughs> would provide you with some anxiety because it's. You mean not... I have the wrong diagnosis of why I feel anxious about it? Well, I, I don't know, but one <laughs> hypothesis I would definitely throw at you is that because you've never competed. Yeah, that's probably awesome. And it is, and it is the most competitive element of our sport. Cross country and the Met League in particular is a very high standard. And it is right you know the courses are tough the environment is tough it's obviously very consuming because there's lots of people standing around cheering and shouting and yeah yeah uh, egging you on and so on so it wouldn't surprise me at all that you would find that challenging because you, right. you just haven't got that bank of experience well i think it's also true that uh so one of the one of the interesting things i find uh the difference between you know the as it were the english runners including the women uh, and me is I think I have the impression that um, in English schools, this happens much more as a matter of course, yeah, that people do cross country running, at least at some point. In German school, there's very little organized sport. We had like two hours physical education a week, and it was very, very tame. Um, I think it was some sort of gym, gymnastics of sorts. The boys were separated from the girls. We did very little athletics. We did a little bit of that sort of during the summer. Whereas I had the, I have the feeling, especially in cross country, that um, a lot of my English club members have an intuitive sense of what cross country is about. They kind of recognize the exercise and um, that probably helps, you know, that that probably helps um, with with controlling the anxiety about it because you sort of know it a little mm. bit. Mm. For me, this was a baptism of fire. I remember the first, Vicky Fabry, she persuaded me to do a, a Chingford League thing, Chingford League cross country. And I ran that and I, I was quite, quite, you know, successful at it. And I thought, okay, this is not so bad. And then she said, oh, come to the Met League. And I came to the Met League and it was, I think, Uxbridge and I nearly died. <laughs> <laughs> it's talk about going to the abyss. But it, I, it, that's the difference, isn't it? Chingford League is sort of the friendly version, isn't yes. it, of the Met League? Yes. And you describe it, it is quite aggressive. The Met League is quite aggressive. It is yeah. super competitive. So I, I kind of get that. And it, that, for me, is a quite a telling story about the way that girls historically have been treated in sport, which is, right. no, no, no competition. We'll just do some gymnastics and uh-huh. you'll, you'll get scored out of 10 by somebody yeah. But probably not, even in schools. It's probably just doing the routines for the sake of the routines yes, without yes. a competitive element. Yes. And so when it comes to being an adult and trying to compete, particularly if you've not done it for mm-hmm. 50 years, then, wow, it's going to hit you like a steam train. Right. Yes, what, competition. What yes, competi- but you see, I think the other element in my case is 
I'm extremely competitive with myself. So put me in a competitive situation like that, and my 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 um, my mental state just goes through the roof. Uh, and it's sort of then because then I have to prove to myself that I can that I can sort of keep up with this. Hmm. Um, so so it's not just so much it's not or it's not just that the fact that I'm competing with others. It's just as much the fact that in that situation um, I have to show myself that I'm not failing in my own eyes. And that is quite hard at times for me. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're also facing the demons still. You're facing the abyss each time and you're putting yourself in a very vulnerable place. Yes. Every, right. every time you do a medley grace. Yes. Is the same true of the marathon, do you think, for you? No, I think the marathon was for me a, a, quite a different experience. And I'm not I'm not sure why, but um, so the, the so for me, the my best marathon for me was the second Manchester marathon. Um because I felt pretty strong throughout. Um, whereas in the other marathons I did at, at, a, at a certain point, sort of around 35, 37K, I really felt, you know, like really um, pretty much at, at the end. But the second marathon, I remember, for me, the marathon feels like... So if, so if, the, if the Met League is the abyss, then the marathon is the sublime. <laughs> Amazing. With a marathon, it's like you're riding this wave. And at some point, the wave is inside you. And it's no longer clear whether um, you're riding the wave or the wave is sort of riding you in some sort of way. But it was for me that it was just one of the most powerful experiences. And also it was one of the most, most powerful social experiences. Because I think that um, the fact that you're running it with others... But that at the same time, it's not so overtly competitive. You know, it's almost more like you're pulling each other through this. And I think that for me was an extremely positive, one of the sort of most positive social experiences that I've had. But I also think of the marathon as this, this spirit, the spirit that um, that you kind of that you kind of wrestle with. Um, and I, like I say, it's it's in you, it's outside you, it's you you're riding it, and the fact that you can break through this wall, that you that you can break through the through the wall of sort of fatigue and carry on. For me, yes, the marathon was an experience that I didn't think I I could have from running, and I'm very I'm very glad that MJ Wang made me sign up. To my first Manchester Marathon mm -hmm. because um, I never thought that I would ever run a marathon. Uh, and again, one of the things that I thought I didn't like about it was the sort of social side of it, that there's so many people. But in a marathon, I think um, the fact that there are so many people is what carries you, what carries you through to, to a large extent. Yeah. I think on that element, the social element of the marathon, it works in both ways. So you can use the draw of the crowd of runners as well as the spectators to right. help, help you, but you can also right. disappear. So you're disappear, not... how do you mean? Well, oh, you... I see you disappear in the crowd. Yeah. Because you can go in on yourself and concentrate on yourself mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. nobody nobody else is watching you really. No one That's else is true. really caring about what you're doing. You can concentrate yeah. on yourself and you can deal with the demons in those moments, but you can also ride that positive wave that you were talking yeah. about, knowing yeah. it's just you and it's you that's powering yourself around. 
yeah. which I think is a very empowering thing. And one of the reasons why I think the marathon is so magical is because you get to the finish line and no matter how good a race you've had, you get to that finish line and this the sense of fulfillment that it can be quite overwhelming. Yes. Because it's such a big deal. And it's not just the race, it's the training that leads up to that. And you've got yourself there. Nobody else has. Of course, you've right. had some help. You might have had a coach set you some particularly laborious sessions. You might have had some people helping you in the background. You may have people there on the day with some banners and stuff, but really it's you that gets you there. And that's something that you can never, never replace or have taken away from, from you. Yeah. And, you, and you've achieved that for the first time at a very late stage in life at a very high level yeah, well, when you look at um, your age. Yes. So sometimes, of course, I think it's a sort of shame that I did it so late because sometimes I'm a bit curious, well, what, what could if you I have done? done this earlier, you know? But I think it's a bit of an idle thing. I mean, I, I am I am curious about um, how I would have, you know, how I would have performed had I, had I um, done this earlier. But then again, I think, okay, so had I had I given my time to marathon running earlier in my life, there there would have been other things that I wouldn't have done instead. And I think that looking back, there are some things that I'm very very glad that I've done. And so from that perspective, I, I, and also it's quite nice to to show at a late stage that you can do it. Yeah, so it's very nice to show that at sixty, there's no reason why you shouldn't be running a marathon. Mm. You know, so if I can do it, then, you know, I wouldn't go as far as saying that anyone can do it. And um, because like I say, it, it, and like you say, it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of training and it takes quite a lot of dedication. But I would have thought that, you know, if you put your mind to it, you can do it. Um, 60 and older than that, I'm, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. And returning to that idea that women were only allowed to run the marathon in the Olympics in 1984 and various other events, not long before that. It kind of breaks that idea that has existed for decades, stroke centuries, that the women, the female body is frail and it yeah. can't take these challenges on. You know, way back in between the wars, women were only able to do, I think it's the 400 metres, something like that in the Olympics. They weren't even between allowed to run. Wars. Really? Yeah, in between the wars. So, you know, that's obviously nearly 100 years ago now. But at that point in time, the women's body was considered so frail that it couldn't run for any longer than... 90 seconds at a time <laughs> <laughs> and well not even that you know maybe 60 seconds at a time and where I've referred back to in this podcast the book Game On which you should read by the way which is a book mm-hmm. by Sue Anstis and talks about how women's sport is changing in that and in some of her lectures she talks about female frailty myth was such that men would decide that women couldn't do things because mm. they assumed that any kind of vigorous activity would lead to the uterus falling out Yes, I, so I watched that video that you, uh, the, the documentary that you recommended. Oh, you did, yeah, on. exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was a very good doc- documentary, and the same point was made there. Yes, that's, that's the think, same person. Yeah, right, okay. And so she's written a book. Yeah, that documentary is based on the book she's written. Okay, so I'll definitely, I'll definitely look out for the book. Yeah. But I think it's also interesting how culturally specific this female frailty myth is, because I, I travel, I, I travel quite a lot to Africa, West Africa. And um, I think there again, I learned an incredible um, lot. I mean, so so West African role models, West African women were role models for me because there's, you know, the the sort of the sort of strength that they exhibit, and, and um, you know, in just carrying out sort of daily chores of carrying water for miles and miles and miles, it's kind of 
ludicrous to think that the female body is is mm. frail. Mm. So my feeling is that it's a kind of, especially a, a Victorian um, myth that lingers uh, for a long time. I think I also uh, heard that, in fact, during the First World War or before, you know, during the First World War, when all the factory workers, the male factory workers were in the war and the women uh, were in the factories, they set up these football matches mm. that were incredibly successful and were, uh, you know, were sort of attended by lots of people to the point where then the Football Association banned women's football because it was in danger of um, uh, sort of outshining male football. So again, these, the, 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 the myth of the female body seems often um, politically motivated. You know, because there are times when when females clearly can be strong, and then there's such as when during the war they have to take the on the work that the men would do, and then there are times where suddenly they become all weak again. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of politics there. Yes, and it, but I think those things are real, right? They happened. Yes, yes. And we're at a point now where it's starting to shift, and it's starting to you shift. Think I, so? I think quickly. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's not equal, and it's it, there's right. still a lot to be done, particularly in. In ball sports, actually. In ball sports? Yeah. There's there's a real societal determination that ball sports are less good for females. When you watch <laughs> females, it's less good than males. And I, you know, it, and I, I, the argument I make is that, well, if you're talking about speed, then yeah, because uh-huh. we know that men can do things more quickly yeah. when they're yeah. in, in activity than women. In running, no one cares about that. No one cares that the women run 10% slower than men. We still think it's super impressive when someone runs a two twenty marathon if they're a woman, and we think it's super impressive if someone runs a two ten marathon for a man. Right. We don't, we don't draw those comparisons, but in ball sport, we seem to. We seem to go huh. the the men's game's way better than the women's game, but we're judging it by different metrics. If you're right. measuring it by power and speed, then yeah, maybe. But if you measure it on different things like competition, like uh, resilience, competitiveness, the mm-hmm. abil- the ability to problem solve then it's going to be just as powerful as watching mm-hmm. men's sport. But we've not learned that as yet. But I would have thought that the recent um, uh, uh, England women's win against Germany, I would have thought might have shifted stuff. Well, that's the point, I think. I think that's the point. That that's that was a, a game changer. Yes, um, I can so, see completely why. And actually... What, one of, sorry, one of the interesting things about that is that partly was a game changer because it, it seemed so incredibly important... Um, for non-sport reasons, for the English to beat the Germans at, 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 at something. And the fact that it's the women who did it and not the men seems to have sort of really um, had a, a massive impact. Um, I remember seeing a video of a guy after this and um, the, uh, he was asked what, what he thought of the of the women's win- winning. And he said something like, um, love to the ladies, love to the ladies. Um, uh, uh, football's coming home. The man them couldn't do it, so the girl them did. <laughs> Brilliant. So the, the the sense that we have to beat Germany at something at some point in our lives, other than... And the know, women did the, it. <laughs> yes, and the women did it. Exactly. Yeah. But I think that is a game changer. And part of the reason it's a game changer is because of the way it was done. So a lot right. of the narrative around going to watch women's football in particular, particularly uh-huh. in the stadium, is that it's a much less toxic environment mm-hmm. because it's much more balanced. So if you go to a men's football match... And this happened, right? So a year before England were in the Euros and they got to the final just like the women did and there was violence and thuggery right. and all the oh. negative, toxic behaviours you associate with men's sport. 
But with yeah. women's sport, it's a pleasant environment. Everybody gets to sit down and cheer and support and appreciate the sport. And there isn't that same sense of violence. And one of the things that comes out of this story of how women's sport is so important is that actually it's got, and the game on talks about this, is women's sport's got the, the opportunity to change sport as a whole. Right. Yeah. And try and rid it of some of the toxic behaviours that right. exist because it's been driven by men for so long. Yeah, yeah. Of course, one has to be a little bit careful about then expecting women's sport to civilize the sport. And I professionally do political theory and the history of political thought. And there's a whole long history about how the women civilize the men by teaching them to be more nice. Um, so, so I think the only sort of the only kind of portion I would say there, one I think it would be a shame if um, women's sports were began to be respected for reasons other than the sport, as it were. Yeah, got you. So, so again, it's it's men controlling things because actually women are helping make the men's sport better. Yeah, so that, <laughs> but that's not the point. The point mm, is that's women, not the point. <laughs> no, women just want to play sport, and actually it goes back to something you said earlier about you're not running to inspire other people. And one of the things we've heard a lot in this country ever since the London Olympics is this idea of inspiring the next generation, because that was the, right. the catch phrase of that Olympics or the tagline of that Olympics. Yeah. And I've become a little bit bored of that because I think we can't always be inspiring the next generation. No. We do sometimes need to focus on today and yes. who we've got today. And, and I hear it a lot, particularly in women's sport, is, is women saying, right. I, I hope that... Our success today, whether it's the netball team, the hockey team, the football team, the mm-hmm. rugby team, you know, I hope our success inspires the next generation of girls to come and join the sport. And of course, yeah. that's true. But it should also be inspiring women. It should be inspiring people to take up sport now. Yes. Because look at you competing yeah. in sport for the first time in your life. Well, 50s. yes, yes. And of course, I think that um, one of the kind of nice things about me is that, um, I mean, the way I came into this was by accident, really. So in my case, it wasn't really that I felt inspired by some women who were leading the way. Actually, it was Joe Dale who pushed me into Vicky Park, and then it was Victor, Vicky, Vicky who pushed me into the Met League, as it were, you know. Mm. And I actually quite like that. It's a series of accidents, as it were, or some, you know, somebody just basically telling you, why don't you try this? And I think that, yes, I, I, I agree with you, This um, always this idea that, I mean, of course one needs... One needs people to support one. In my case, I'm not sure how much seeing a Ethiopian marathon um, uh, run the marathon would serve as a personal ins- could serve as a personal inspiration for me, because I think the kind of support that one needs comes is much more local, more relatable. It's more yeah, much more people who um, who you know or people mm. who can show you stuff, you know. Uh, so I I do think that the rise of women's professional women's sport in the background is very important but it's not the only thing no sure yeah I think what's interesting about what you say about being a series of accidents is how you've got to where you are I mean you could call them accidents of course but they're they're coincidences it's a bit of luck and I think life often carries that you have to be in the right places at the right times for things to fall into place yeah and actually you had your accidents in your late 50s whereas Charlotte Perdue who we've spoken to as part of this series had her accident when she was 11 Right. She, she turned up at a cross country race because she wanted to go along with some friends. Well, it yeah. Didn't even well, win, right. didn't even win the race, but mm-hmm. looked quite good during the race and got a coach came up to her and said, I think you should come and join my club. I think well, you'd be really good. And then f- 
within four years she was competing internationally and now is obviously one of Britain's best marathon runners ever but it was an accident yeah yeah but it so as you say it was an accident but it it took the coach to come forward yes it took the coach to come forward and it took the opportunity to have provided itself so Charlotte in that instance was a had the opportunity to run in a cross-country race whereas when you were at school you didn't Mm -hmm. and in your case now Mm -hmm. you had the opportunity to join a club that was open to and welcoming of all people of all abilities Mm -hmm. and gender and age and all those types of things so we have to have an environment that creates it and ideally a support network that pushes you into into, provides those opportunities yeah yeah and I do think the talk about inspiration is part of the story but um but it's not going to do the it's not it's it's not going to do the real work to get someone from not running to running and Mm. you know actually possibly enjoying it I think I think they have to be um, that's that's going to be more hands-on as it were yeah exactly we have to I think allow it to happen at a much more societal level but also at a macro level you have to have the conditions for it to to come up and that's why I think male allies are so important and female role models is probably not the right word but females that are relatable um who are active are so important as as we go through this yeah well, I could talk to you all day about this, but we're going to have to finish there. Um, okay. But thank you very much for sharing all of those very deep thoughts. I hope you haven't climbed too far into the abyss, or at least you can climb out of it. No, no, I really enjoyed it. Uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to tell you that our running is a passion, but I think you might know that already. <laughs> yes, I think I do know that already. <laughs> oh, I could have gone on for ages. Or rather, I could have let that go on for ages. And the reason I've chose this episode for the last of our five-part mini-series is because that conversation is so rich. But also because it sums up really nicely in lots of ways some of the content that came before it from Charlotte, Natasha and Tish. As well as my own rambles at the very beginning. There are, of course, some themes that come directly from this conversation, as well as some very brief overall themes, which we'll, we'll just scuttle through now as I continue my jog around the forest. The first of those themes from Catherine is that, is that running is hard, but it is also liberating. And she spoke really eloquently and thoughtfully as she does throughout but she spoke particularly eloquently about how running enabled her to take control of her body and understand the power the confidence she had in it and the strength it provides in a way that had never really occurred to her before and that enabled her to see how important it was for women to have control over their own bodies in a world where that doesn't always feel like it's the way and that leads to the second theme, which we've discussed a few times, the female frailty myth. And here she blows a wind from a different direction onto the issue, in that the female frailty myth is a very Western thought and idea, and doesn't exist at all in parts of the world that she's visited through her studies, 
where the female body is celebrated for its strength. And of course you don't have to look too far, even in our own society, to see where and how the female frailty myth is indeed a myth. And that is of course in the process of childbirth. And anybody who's gone through that process, either male or female, as in witnessed it, been a part of it, or actually produced a child, you will know how amazingly strong the female body is. The third theme, as I see it to come out of that conversation, is that Catherine succeeded because she was not worried about what people thought. And actually she succeeded because she saw it as a way of getting away from everyone. And we touched on it a little, that even though you might be amongst crowds in a race, you can still get away from people. And that segues nicely into the fourth point, which is something I've spoken about before, which is the importance of the freedom that running provides us. The sense that we can, we can be wherever we want, we can be ourselves, we can be alone or we can be with others, but we can make those choices on our own terms. And we succeed, or not, by ourselves. And when I think about that, that freedom that, that we all enjoy, we all experience, I think why wouldn't that be accessible to everybody? And of course, in the past it hasn't always been so. Crazy really. And then the fifth thing, going broader than just running, thinking about women's sport as a whole. I spoke of the, the role that women's sport could play to help improve sport in general, to help detoxify some of what goes on in male sport. And Catherine reminded me, or perhaps made it clear to me, that that is not the purpose of women's sport. It is there for women to enjoy, and that should be celebrated in its own right, not celebrated because it's going to help men improve their sport. So some really good themes and some really good thoughts that I'm very grateful to have had the opportunity to work through with Catherine. But overall, there's just a couple of big themes that come out of this and all five episodes and the first of those is the importance of male allies and relatable female role models you've seen it throughout that the women who are succeeding in in sport doing so with the support of men whether it's a male coach an old teacher a university lecturer in Catherine's case or perhaps the dads of daughters. And that is of course of no great celebration of men. That is actually a consequence of society's downplaying of women's ability in sport, which hopefully will change. And then we have role models, 
and catch her in a game, put it nicely. An Ethiopian marathoner breaking the world record has little bearing on her motivation and inspiration. But what people around her are doing does. And we heard that from Charlotte at the beginning as well. And it's interesting because Catherine doesn't see herself as a role model. I'm not sure Charlotte does, or Natasha, or Tish for that matter. And I think it's hard to choose to be a role model. It's not your decision to make who you inspire and how you inspire them. It's the people being inspired who make those decisions. It's that inspiring the next generation thought. It's a great mantra and it's something that is powerful. But do what you do. Do it for yourself, do it for your own reasons. Do it to enjoy your moments on the planet. Allow others to decide whether they see that as inspiring or worthy of you being a role model or not. And I think if you seize those moments, if you enjoy those moments, if you work hard through those moments, then you will inspire others by default. You don't need to seek that. And finally, this is where it all kind of comes together, really. I think in that conversation with Catherine, there was a really powerful articulation of the importance of running on maintaining mental health. And I sort of regret not taking that a little bit further at the time. Maybe we'll do that again at another time. And it's something we all know to be true. Physical activity and sport plays a massively important role in mental health. It's not just running. Although I think running does take you to places that other sports don't. Somewhere between the abyss and the sublime. But it's just crazy that over time that women have not had the same access to that opportunity to maintain their mental health. And that for me is why the issue or the subject of women in sport is such an important one for us all to understand better. Particularly as we're going through what is undoubtedly a quite dramatic change in the way that it's played, the way that it's watched, the way that it's regarded. And we're not talking about the inclusion of minority groups here, we're talking about the inclusion of half of the population. And so if we believe in the benefits that sport can have on people, it feels like this is a pivotal moment in time, as perhaps best demonstrated by the success of the Lionesses in getting to the World Cup final. And perhaps the best thing we can all do is not to make comparisons. Let men's sport and women's sport exist happily alongside each other as completely different things and enjoy them for what they both provide. So we've covered a lot in five episodes. I hope you've enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed it. I've learned loads. 
had some interesting conversations with some interesting people raised probably more questions than we've answered and I suspect we'll be returning to the subject again in the future as it ever evolves as our thinking, our mindsets and of course the prestige, popularity and profile of women's sports continues to improve but for now thank you for joining me through these five fun episodes and until next time please take care Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.